You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, tonight we continue our exposition of the book of Revelation, this incredible concluding book of the scriptures, and we're looking at chapter 1. Verses 4 through 6. Revelation chapter 1, as soon as I find the page number, you'll find it on page 1028 of the Pew Bible. 1,028, we're reading Revelation chapter 1 and verses 4 through 6. Hear the word of God. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Revelation, as you know, is framed as a letter to the seven churches that were in Asia. It begins with a customary letter formula with the sender, the recipients, and the greeting, and many of the recipients at that time were enduring fierce opposition and harsh mistreatment. And so what is going on here is God's having John write this to breathe in courage and confidence to a suffering church. The Apostle John addresses this to those seven historical Asian churches. These were not mythical. They're not just theoretical. They're actual local churches. And if we consulted a map, we'd find that these are situated in somewhat of a circle going from south to north. And John doesn't give a reason for choosing these particular churches because there were other congregations in Asia Minor, Colossae, Troas, for example, But Christ chose seven, since seven signifies perfection and completeness. The creation week, you remember, was completed on the seventh day of rest. Israel blew seven horns on the seventh day after marching seven times around Jericho. In Leviticus, sprinkling of blood seven times symbolized a complete act. And in this book, we have seven seals, seven trumpets, seven angels, plagues, bowls, and thunders. So seven churches symbolizes a perfect and complete bride of Christ. And these seven churches are representative of the entire church of Christ in all ages. And that means that there is something of every church contained in these seven somewhere. At Ephesus, we find a lagging church that had abandoned its first love. At Smyrna, there is this little church whose poverty had concealed the true riches that it had in Christ. At Pergamum, he addresses a lax church that tolerated false teaching. 
And at Thyatira, there was a libertine church who put up with the prophetess Jezebel. At Sardis, we find a lifeless church, reputed to be alive, but really, or at least almost, dead. And at Philadelphia, there is this loving church with little power, but they kept the word of God. And of course, as you know, the church at Laodicea was lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, and therefore nauseating to the Lord Jesus Christ. To these seven churches, Christ the King speaks, and really, he's speaking to us all. And he stands in the midst of the lampstands, and he is ever-present with us. He knows his church, and he's able to make an infallible assessment of each one. Every situation and any condition of his church is explicit or implicit in these seven representatives. It is an occasion to examine ourselves, I believe, in light of the Lord's infallible review of all the societies on earth, the one with the, that is most important is that which is of the church. David said, One thing have I asked, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. And we, tonight, have the privilege of being in the church. So to all these seven churches is granted from God both grace and peace. And you know something? That in and of itself is amazing. Because the Lord has to be patient with at least five of these churches. Grace refers to the blessing of God who gives what we do not deserve. It is favor to which we have no right or title. It is favor of which we are entirely unworthy and undeserving. And sometimes it has been defined as God's unmerited favor, but that's only partially true. Because as sinful people, we are in a position of total demerit. We can't merit anything. So it's not just that we are undeserving, it's also that we are ill-deserving. We deserve damnation. We've done nothing to deserve his favor. We've done that which deserves his wrath. By nature, from birth, we are God-haters at enmity with heaven. And apart from Christ, we're alienated from God, opposed to his law, unable to obey, unwilling to repent, prone to rebel, and spiritually dead. And in spite of all of that, on the basis of Christ's work, God forgives and accepts us as we learned this morning. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. And that same word enemy is used for Satan in Matthew 13. By nature, we were like our father, the devil. We bore his image. We followed his example. But out of grace... God clothes us in righteousness and he delivers us from wrath. So that Paul can say, by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. And that is grace. God gives in Christ what we don't deserve. And therefore we sing, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Well, the Apostle John also invokes the peace of God upon the churches of Christ. So often in the scriptures, peace is the companion benefit of grace. For example, Paul says to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus. Peter chimes in in his second epistle saying, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So peace 
It's not just the absence of turmoil, but our reconciliation with God. That's biblical peace. Some might even go so far as to say it is the reflection of God's smile in the heart. Think of the ironic blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and to top it all off, give you peace. May you enjoy the sweetness of God's smile and the fullness of his blessing. But you know something in this Revelation passage, the order of terms is significant because we must receive grace before we can have peace. Peace with God is rooted in and preceded by the grace of God. In other words, saving grace is a prerequisite for reconciling peace. If someone claims to have peace apart from grace, it is only the peace of a graveyard. Of what advantage is it to have no conflict with man if we have no peace with God? We're all temporal blessings. What are all the temporal blessings in the world without spiritual harmony? Or as Jesus would put it, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What good is it to live 70 or even 80 years because of strength accumulating sins only to plunge into the pit? How sad to have no peace with God, no spiritual comfort, no abiding hope. And so what we need as sinners is that divine grace that will lead us to divine peace. And notice how John invokes this twofold benediction from the triune God. Did you see that? How rich are the blessings. They're received not just from man. They're received from the hand of our God who dwells in Trinitarian fullness. They're not just from one or another of the three divine persons. They're bestowed by the entire Godhead, the mysterious, eternal Trinity, in all of its eternal fullness, blessing his own people. And would not this have been greatly comforting to saints who were suffering persecution? It was received in the midst of the most severe trials, and there was great pressure to compromise So that Jesus would say to the church, don't fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you'll have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I'll give you the crown of life. And I think the knowledge of God's benediction here would breathe courage into the soul. So I think it behooves us tonight to consider the descriptions of these three divine persons. Thinking of God is always an enlarging concept. First of all, there's God the Father in verse 4. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And in this threefold description, the Father's immutability is underscored. It harkens back to the tetragrammaton revealed to Moses at the burning bush. God said to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. In other words, he is the God who is unbounded by time. He has no beginning. He has no end. He's God the Father for whom past and present and future are all the same. It is he alone who has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, 
the one who is, was, and is to come is our creator, sustainer, and judge. And he's the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God. And he knows all, and he sees all, and he directs everything that happens in the universe. And from the everlasting Father comes every good and perfect gift. And so we can draw comfort from the unchangeable God of the covenant. He is ever faithful. What that means is that once he sets his love upon us, he will never let us go. I am the Lord, and I do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Our God and Father has always been and will always be resolutely faithful. Heaven and earth will pass away before one jot of his word will go unfulfilled. Every promise is established by his changeless divine character. He's the eternal, unchangeable God, the same to the Old Testament church that was and to the New Testament church that is and to the church triumphant that is to come. That's God the Father. But then there's God the Holy Spirit. Grace to you and peace from the seven spirits who are before his throne, we're told. And of course, somebody may question whether this strange expression really refers to the Holy Spirit. After all, is he not the third person of the Trinity? Doesn't the Bible treat him as one person? Chapter 3, verse 6, for example. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So why does John describe him as seven spirits before the throne of God? Well, let's remember that Revelation is a book filled with symbolism. And don't forget that seven is the number of completeness and perfection. It's used very often. As a matter of fact, in this book alone, John uses the number seven no less than 54 times. So seven spirits are not meant to signify separate beings that are equal with God. Just as seven churches represent the whole church, seven spirits represent the divine spirit. And it corresponds to that sevenfold description of the spirit who rests on the branch in Isaiah 11. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Seven. And notice that in that one verse, all seven descriptions apply to the same spirit. And it helps to show the variety and the diffusion of the spirit of the risen Christ. So seven spirits shows the fullness and the perfection of the spirit's presence and his influence and his ministry. He sent forth as the great promise of the covenant who was secured by Christ. And this explains the significance of the phrase before his throne. He proceeds from the Father and the Son. Jesus himself said, the, whole, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. He is the great executor of God's covenant. He applies all the benefits of redemption to his people. He comes to us. He dwells within us to illuminate, to comfort, and to edify the brethren. And he is the person who fills you and I with joy and peace in believing. 
And in so doing, he helps our weaknesses and he guides our steps and he guarantees our redemption. That's the Holy Spirit. But then finally, there is God the Son, our Redeemer himself, who is mentioned as a source of divine blessing. Grace to you and peace from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. And there is no benediction for anyone apart from the mediation of the Lord Jesus, pure and simple. Our catechism says the sinfulness of man and his distance from God by reason thereof is so great, (laughs) infinite distance, that we can have no access into his presence without a mediator. Now, there is no one who can bridge that gap. There is nobody else who is appointed to or fit for that glorious work. And there is salvation in no one else. Jesus is the only name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And the exclusivity, he's the only one, the exclusivity of the Christian religion is the great stumbling block to the world. My Hindu friend at Life Center has no problem with worshiping the Lord Jesus. He's one of my many. As far as he's concerned, he can assimilate all kinds of things into his faith, Christian, Islam, whatever. But Christ makes it clear that apart from him and him alone, no one comes to the Father. There is no benediction, there is no benefit, there is no blessing outside of Christ. He is the great Redeemer. He is the stone seen by Daniel that was cut out by no human hand. And on the basis of his finished work at the cross, the blessings of God come to us. And that means that without the Lord Jesus, there would be no life or beatitude. The only thing that we could anticipate would be death and deep darkness. Romans 5, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And like the other divine persons, he is identified here specifically. The Father was described as him who is and who was and who is to come. The Spirit, by the number seven, as the seven spirits who are before God's throne. And Jesus is designated by a threefold description that corresponds, mind you, to his three offices. He's the faithful witness, as the great prophet who reveals to the church. He's the firstborn of the dead, as the great high priest who ascended into heaven. And he's the ruler of kings on earth, as the majestic monarch who rules over all things. Let's look at those more particularly. Jesus is the prophet who testified faithfully and sealed his testimony with his own blood. We're told that in his testimony before Pilate, he made the good confession. Just as the psalmist in Psalm 89 predicted that Christ would be a faithful witness to the end. He came into the world to bear witness to the truth and he died as a testimony to it. And upon his testimony, you and I can safely depend. He cannot be deceived and he will not deceive us. The early Christians, as you know, were tempted to compromise their witness in the face of opposition. It's happening all over the world today. They're tempted to compromise their witness in the face of persecution and opposition. But here's one who suffered more intensely than anybody. And he overcame. 
And so he says, be faithful unto death and I'll give you the crown of life. He is the great prophet, but he's also the high priest who sacrificed himself and now makes intercession for us. His substitutionary death was sufficient to cleanse you and I from all sin. And then he rose and he ascended into heaven where he pleads on our behalf by name. So he is the firstborn of the dead, not just in priority of time, but priority of privilege. He's exalted above the heavens. His name is far superior to angels. And as the first fruits of the resurrection, he is the one in whom the Father is well pleased. He came forth from that tomb as the covenant head of all the elect, so that just as he rose from the dead, so you and I who trust in him will rise. It's so wonderful to be able to say that at those funerals I do. There's going to be a resurrection of the dead. He's the prophet, he's the high priest, and finally he is the great king who sits enthroned at the right hand of the majesty on high. He rules the universe, you know. He sits victorious over all the forces of evil. Don't let circumstances or providence guide your thinking. The word of God tells us he is in charge. And all of his enemies were vanquished at the cross. And now it's just cleanup. The kings of earth and the satanic hordes have been thoroughly vanquished. And he says, the one who conquers, and by that he means by faith, believing till the end, I'll grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. But then John cannot help himself. He goes on to further describe this Savior of our souls. He says to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. And don't you sense here how John was just unable to contain himself at this point? After greeting us in the name of the Trinity, he bursts forth with this anthem of praise. And once more, he utilizes this threefold framework to express his devotion to Christ. He refers to a love that's present, to a deed that's past, and to a reign that lasts forever. First, Jesus Christ is the one who loves us, now even more than we can imagine. Did he not demonstrate this when he suffered on that cross? And if he loved us then while we were enemies, how must he love us now that we are saints? We must pray then for strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. But then secondly, Jesus Christ shed his blood and in so doing freed us from our sins. It's glorious, this redemptive accomplishment that he made in the fullness of time. By his vicarious death, he delivered us from the power and the penalty and ultimately the presence of sin. So that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then third and finally, Jesus Christ has raised all believers to the status of kings and priests. And that means that you and I as faithful Christians are going to share in his reign. We're going to rule with him over all things. And even now we join in his priestly work by interceding for others. 
but we are a royal priesthood, an assembly of priests who will reign. And we proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his kingdom of light. And every believer, regardless of how humble that believer might appear, may rejoice in this royal privilege. So as we conclude, let's say that we should rejoice in the eternal glory and the everlasting dominion of our triune God. The Father in his unchanging faithfulness to those whom he chose from before the foundation of the world. The Son in the efficacy of his redeeming blood by which he saved us to the uttermost. And the Spirit in the fullness of his power to sanctify us and to fill us with peace. The immutability of the Father, the fidelity of the Son, and the dignity of the Spirit. As believers, let us not ever live beneath our privilege as priests and kings. Wake up every morning and say to yourself, I'm a child of God. I'm a priest and a king. And let's enjoy the benefits that he secured for us and fulfill the privileges that he's bestowed upon us. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. This Trinitarian blessing is of great comfort and encouragement to the whole church. And we thank you that it has revealed to us your faithfulness and the efficacy of Christ's blood and the power of the Spirit. We rejoice in this salvation and pray that you'll receive our praise as those who sing with joyful hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.